Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. You're listening to the Fish Untamed Podcast, your home for fly fishing the backcountry. This is episode 60 with Chris Ballerini on guiding in Alaska. I actually, so I usually just like ask my guests how they got started in fishing, but for a lot of my friends, I already know, but I actually realized I don't know how you got into fishing in the first place. Like we met guiding and that was it, but how, how did you first that, get introduced to fly fishing? That was pretty much fishing? it. That was it? As far <laughs> that as was fly fishing, <laughs> as far as fly fishing, you were there for the whole journey, really. Oh, that's funny. Um, I didn't know that. Yeah. I mean, I, um, I fished like casually growing up, but it was more just like an excuse to go hang out with friends did a lot of like fishing with shiners for bass and stuff like that um I never really got into like the gear or like never really tried to uh, get good at it or anything and then uh when i moved to colorado i met sanchez working for Vail, and uh you know he was i was wasn't sure what i was going to do for the winter time because it was a seasonal job and uh Sanchez was like, dude, you should come work. You should come guide like at Sasquatch and in, in Estes. And I was like, I don't, I don't know how to, like, I don't know. I don't even know how to cast a fly rod, man. Like, what are you, what are you talking about? And, uh, he convinced me, he took me to, um, Antero Reservoir and taught me how to cast a fly rod. And then that summer I was there just kind of faking it until I figured it out. And you, <laughs> you were right there with me. <laughs> it's it's kind of crazy how many people there started, like started fly fishing the, the first day they started guiding, which is, right. but I mean, it's not like you're leading trips or anything. You're kind of like shadowing almost and, right. you know, helping people with their knots and tangles and stuff like that. It's not like you're just taking a, a group out and, and being like, right. and now I'm going to be the expert here. Right. 
Yeah, because I was in the yeah. same boat when I started. I was like, I haven't held a fly rod before. Right. Yeah, I mean, I just kind of faked it until I figured it out. And, um, you know, I found with Sasquatch and when I ended up guiding in Alaska that it's way more about um, just being able to deal with people and being able to manage a group and manage time and just being able to have conversations with people and relate to them, like, more so than, like, technical fishing prowess. I mean, obviously, you want to be able to get people on fish. Um, but yeah, it seems like that was a bigger part of, of, uh, you know, what allowed me to, you know, to guide in different places and stuff like that. Yeah. I feel like uh, assuming that you've got the, you know, the ability to catch fish on like wherever you're guiding, it's, it becomes at some point much more about, can you show them a good time? Can you keep them entertained? Can you teach them something? And right. it's like, I don't know. I, I, there's a lot of people out there that I think, and I think we were talking about this recently where, they are like the best, they're like the best anglers in the world, but if they can't communicate that well or can't, can't convey it to the person they're teaching, it's like, it doesn't really go anywhere. Um, right. and you can be like a mediocre fisherman, not that, you know, God should be not good at fishing, but like you could be <laughs> mediocre and be really good at explaining what you're doing and you can get people on like tons of fish their first day out. Right. Yeah. So how did you go from Sasquatch up to Alaska? Um, <clears throat> I guided, uh, two seasons with you guys and, um, I think I became a lead guide like during that first season somehow um just figured out how to run the casting class and and uh I just was able to like manage the trips and stuff I guess but um yeah then Joe emailed us I think at one point saying that you know um Ben Pascal I know of him I don't know him so, personally so he I believe he guided at the camp that I'm that I that I guide at um, and he had guided for Joe in the past and he just had gotten an email. Ben had forwarded an email from the owner of Epic in Alaska saying they were looking for guides. Um, and Joe forwarded it to us and I applied and had a conversation with Russ and got the job. It was, it's kind of crazy. What, what was that like? Like finding out that you're going to go to Alaska to guide? Cause I feel like, you know, even the, like when we first got started guiding, it was exciting, but you're, you're like already in Colorado, which is kind of like, okay, I'm going to try this new, new gig versus traveling right. to what feels like another country almost. And yeah, I mean, it was super exciting and super nerve wracking too. You know, I, I made sure in speaking with, with Russ, uh, the owner at Epic Angling that, uh, you know, I was like, dude, I've, I've never done this before. Like, you know, I've been guiding for trout, but I, I, um, you know, I, I, I don't know a single thing about how to catch a salmon. And he was like, oh, no, dude, like, he'll be perfect. Like, we'll, we'll help you figure it out. And so, like, the first, you know, the first couple weeks up there, I was, I was pretty, like, nervous and anxious about it, about just, like, I didn't want to look like I didn't know what the hell I was doing, you know. Despite the fact um, that you didn't know what the hell you were doing. Despite the fact that I didn't know what the hell I was doing. <laughs> yeah. Um, I feel like a lot of people have to be in that boat, though, like, going up there. Yeah. Yeah, I'd say so. Um, no, I mean, I, I was I was really excited because I think at that point in my life, and you know, probably even now, I'm just uh, I was just looking for new and exciting experiences, and I didn't know, you know, what I wanted to quote unquote be when I grew up. You know, I still don't. Um, but yeah, it was just like something super exciting that came across the table, and I. Uh, threw my name in the hat and, and ended up making it up there. And I think after talking to Russ about the whole process, cause I know like some other people at Sasquatch <clears throat> um, applied for it and stuff too. And I was like 
by no means the most experienced one. Um, and I think it was more just a personality fit. Um, cause you're up there with six guys for four months, um, you know, living in tents and the only other people you see are clients that come up. So it's like, you gotta, you gotta get along with other people. Um, and you can't have like too big of an ego. Um, and it, you just, it's just more, yeah, more so I guess about, um, being able to get along with everybody and, and work hard and get the job done up there. Kind of a nerve wracking thing as the owner of that to be like, okay, I'm going to hire these people. They're going to come up. And then like, what if, what if they get a bad apple? Like that just seems like a really I mean, stressful situation to have a bad apple in. He's gotten bad apples for sure. Yeah. That like, how does that go down? Uh, I'm pretty sure that it, last season or the season before someone went up there and just left after like two weeks. Oh really? Like, I'm out of here. Yeah. And kind of screwed over the rest of the staff for the season, you know, cause everybody had to, basically nobody got any days off after that because the guides kind of rotate and one person gets to stay back every three days um you're still working when you're back at camp like just kind of doing maintenance uh on the camp or you know working on whatever he needs you to work on but so yeah he's got he's you know he's had that happen a few times and then there's also been the the camp that i work at is so remote that you can't um, you can't really like drink or smoke pot or anything like that because if you like, you know, trip and fall, you could potentially be four days from, uh, emergency medical treatment. You know, if, if the weather's bad, then no one can really get out to us over the mountains, even in a helicopter. Um, so he's had people who drank too much or like, you know, would bring their own booze, um, and just get hammered up there. And it's just not safe we're all carrying guns all day long and we're kind of part of our job is to keep the clients safe and um you know safe from bears and just like safe in general and uh so yeah there's definitely bad apples i think it's part of the part of the game but yeah uh, i feel like everywhere like gets bad apples it just seems like other places can kind of you know rethink things restructure get someone else filled in because you know like in estes it's not like it'd be hard to find somebody else even if it's just right. like, hey, we need someone to cover the shop while we send more people out or whatever. But it's like, we're right. that far out. You can't just call someone up and be like, hey. Right. I mean, I think he's had to do that several times. I, I want to say he's been doing it like 16 or 17 years, something, maybe a little bit, maybe almost 20 years he's been running the camp. And uh, yeah, I think he's had to deal with that a few times where like, I because I would get, you know, the last few seasons, I would get like random emails like, yo, dude, like any chance you can do the end of September or any chance you can come out for a couple weeks. Um, cause stuff like that always comes up and I haven't been able to go for so long. So I'm pretty fired up to be out there this year. I'm leaving on Tuesday. Oh, you leave on Tuesday. Yeah. For how long do you say a month? Yeah. Yeah. So normally the season, the in past seasons when I've worked there, um, you go from June to October. Um, so it's more like four months. And then I, I just lucked out this year and was able to, jump in there was one guy who could only work the first half of the season and and i was able to jump in and do the second half but when uh when quarantine hit with with everything going on um and my band kind of stopped working as much i was like the first thing that crossed my mind was like i have to go back to alaska like why have i not been in five years okay so that answers uh my question that like is your band just not playing as much right now no we are we're kind of getting back on the horse now although um the the winter is kind of up in the air 
Um, we're not sure what the, the latest COVID surge is going to do to our activity this winter, but um, yeah, we were, we, we pretty much didn't do anything for a year. Um, and then in the, this past spring, we were able to start playing shows again and stuff. So you guys just taking a break while you're gone for the month or is your band kind of making yeah. do without you? Um, I mean, they're going to keep practicing and writing and stuff, but um, I don't think they're going to play any shows okay. while I'm gone. Yeah, they were. I, I was actually really, really grateful that they were supportive of me and trying to leave for a month, like kind of right when we're getting back into playing a lot again. But um, everybody in the band knows how much I, you know, I'm always tough. I feel like in every conversation, I end up finding some way to reference Alaska. Like I'm just obsessed with it. And it's coolest place I've ever been. And, and they know how much I want to go back. So everybody was like really supportive and letting me bounce for a month. That's cool. And I guess a month yeah. probably isn't that terrible too. I mean, I'm sure you could fill it in with some shows, but it's not like you're trying to ditch for half a year during like the busiest time of the year and just leave right. it hanging. Right. Exactly. So how do you uh, get to, like, I, I didn't realize how remote you were. I kind of assumed you were out of some sort of lodge or something. Um, and maybe going out on like short expeditions and coming back to, it. I didn't realize you were just like living out there. How do you, how do you get out there? Are you helicoptered in or boated in or how does that work? Yeah, so we I fly from Boston to Anchorage, usually through Seattle, and then um, or through somewhere else on the West Coast, and then I fly from Anchorage to King Salmon, which is the airport hub of that whole um, like bay fishing area where all the commercial, uh, a lot of the commercial salmon uh, fishing is done. Is this like Bristol Bay area? Yeah, in Bristol Bay, yeah. Um, so then from King Salmon, we take either a fixed wing, a small fixed wing plane or a helicopter um, over the mountains to the Pacific side of the peninsula um, to our camp. It's like, uh, I think it's like 160 miles um, to our camp. And that all depends on weather and tides. If the tides are right and the weather is, is clear enough, then we'll take a fixed wing plane, which is much uh, more affordable um, to fly in. And we land right on the, at the, below our camp, which is like kind of up on a ridge is a big tidal flat. And, um, at low tide, it's like a, a river flowing through the flat and at high tide, it's like a big lake. Um, so when the tide's right, um, a couple hours around low tide, you can land a fixed wing plane right on the tidal flat there. Um, so we'll do that if the weather's good, if not, we'll take a helicopter and we build like a, a helipad over there for it to land on. That's cool. So yeah it's really cool is it a, like a permanent camp like what or or do they set it up for just the the season what kind of tents are we talking about yeah so it's we, they build it yeah that's one of the reasons why i feel sort of strange about coming in so late in the season this time because i missed all of like the hardest work of the season like sounds first, ideal <laughs> yeah right <laughs> we'll see how the other guys feel but, um it's it's funny like they're gonna they're probably gonna be wiped from two months of guiding and working and I'm going to be like fishing every night after work. Well, that's cool though um, for them. I bet just having somebody come in who's not drained. Yeah. So like you'll be gung ho to like yeah. get out and get after it. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I'm excited to be out there. But um, what was your last question? Uh, like what kind of tents are you in? Like, is this like a permanent setup? Or? Oh yeah. So it's on national refuge land. So we can't have, we can only have one permanent structure and it's basically like a, we call it the cache, but it's like a shed. Um, and at the beginning, at the end of the season, everything that we have gets packed into that shed. It's like crazy game of Tetris, like from floor to ceiling, every ounce of, of, uh, space is used up storing all our stuff. We have like 
all the tents, all the sleeping bags, commercial grade um, stoves and stuff and sinks and a water heater and all, all sorts of stuff all gets packed into there. And then we live in these weather ports. They're like tents with super strong aluminum framing and they're, we anchor them into the ground um, and they have like a few layers of vinyl siding around them. So it's, it's like a pretty legit weatherproof tent, you know, even in, in crazy storms and stuff out there, they, they do just fine. Um, so that stuff all gets set up at the beginning of, of the season and then broken down. And there's basically like a, at the beginning of camp, there's a, at the front of the camp, there's a huge cook tent where the, uh, chef cooks and everyone eats. And that's maybe like, I don't know how big it is, maybe like 20, 20 by 15 or something like that. So it's pretty big. And then the, and then there's, I think six or seven guest tents that are smaller than that. And you put two guests in each tent and we build, uh, like platforms out of plywood and, and, uh, two by fours for people to, we have these like pretty thick sleeping bags we put on top and then they're just in a, uh, sorry, sleeping pads. And then they're just in a sleeping bag on top of that. And then there's, uh, an outhouse tent. So we, we dig a big hole for the outhouse and, uh, and we have like a, plywood frame and with a toilet seat on it and stuff that goes over that so it's actually not too bad um you know you can kind of wake up and do your business in the morning like overlooking the whole title flat which is really cool <laughs> that's cool um, yeah and then there's a dry tent where we store like waiters and stuff there's a wood stove that we put in the dry tent and another wood stove in the cook tent and then there's a shower tent and we have a uh a water system that we build from a creek from like a spring-fed creek above the camp and it's all um like gravity powered i guess like the all the the pressure comes from gravity i think you get one psi for every two and a half i don't know if it's inches or feet that it goes down but anyways we just have this crazy water system that goes from a creek down through a bunch of filters into the cook tent and then into the shower tent um that gives us all our water pressure and then we have uh propane to heat the water um so we have lots of propane tanks coming in and out and um all our electricity comes from solar panels this is a crazy setup. You're, yeah, you're kind of bumming it, but cool. you're kind of not bumming it. Like it sounds yeah. pretty luxurious. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's pretty sick. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty awesome. Um, yeah, it's, it's like a kid's like summer camp for adults. It's like boy scouts on crack. It's really cool. <laughs> is that how you advertise it? <laughs> yeah. That's the headline on the website. <laughs> like boy scouts, but on crack. How long does it yeah. take to set it all up, like, at the beginning of the season? It takes, like, two weeks to set up. Really? Yeah. And, um, like, 10 days to break down, something like that. Wow. Yeah. And how, and how are guests getting in? <laughs> are, they, are they also flying in, in, like, a little airplane? Yeah, every Saturday the clients fly in. So it's um, a week-long yeah. trip every yep. time. Okay. Yeah, and it's uh, nine clients that come in every week, um, so there's – three clients to every one guide usually uh, for a day on the river um, or on the flat or on the beach or out in the bay on the boat, wherever you, wherever you end up fishing that day. Um, and the helicopter actually comes back out on Thursdays uh, during the silver season, which is what I'm going in for in September, comes back out and brings us groceries. And then they stay, the helicopter stays for two nights. Um, and we, we jump in the helicopter and heli fish. Like we go, to fish other bays in the area like while it's like there the, the, yeah then the neighboring bays which is that's like the coolest part of the whole 
experience just getting to fly um in the helicopter like over through all these crazy um you know there's like tons of waterfalls and glaciers and volcanoes and stuff it's a pretty wild place to be and uh yeah it's it's funny i I always thought of alaska as this kind of cold barren landscape and it's really lush and green on the coast it's almost like hawaii or something um at the beginning of the season especially and then and then everything starts to color up in the fall it's really really pretty like the whole hillside and all the tundra and everything starts to turn like reds and yellows i was kind of surprised to hear that uh it, the season went through october i would have guessed it's more like a june to september season um is october starting to get pretty chilly it doesn't go through october i feel like maybe it goes into the first week of october oh, okay. sometimes but it's pretty much at the end of september it's pretty much done is it starting to get pretty cold by that time yeah yeah it'll be it'll be pretty chilly in september especially towards the end of the month and at night <clears throat> at night it'll get like into the 30s sometimes Oh, that's still not too uh, bad. I mean, that's yeah. kind of like here too. Yeah, it's there's there's a there's a difference though. I think like being on the coast and then being in the middle of the country as far as temperature goes. Is it colder there? Like a colder? Yeah, 30? I think so because there's so much because there's so much moisture in the air. Um, I found it crazy in Colorado when I moved out there from Boston that you know it could be like zero degrees or ten degrees like a sunny day in the winter and I'd still be out skiing and like yeah. wouldn't be worried about it at all whereas like in boston if it's below 20 like i don't want to go outside at yeah all. and i would never go skiing i mean <laughs> maybe i would but um and i think it has to do with humidity moisture in the air kind of enhances anything yeah like that's another thing about being up in alaska is nothing gets dry ever like we don't bring any cotton clothing it's all quick dry stuff um like if you brought a cotton t-shirt and it got wet it might stay wet for like a week or two weeks that sounds maddening. Like, yeah, be, just being wet is. Just, I feel like it's just one of the worst feelings, and to not be able to. Everything's wet. <laughs> like you, like I hang up all my socks and stuff. Like they're all smart wool, quick dry socks or whatever, and I hang them up around the tent, and then you go to put them on in the morning, and like they're always wet. Like they always feel uh, wet. Is that is that <laughs> just from the moisture in the air? Is it is it actually like wet, or does so. it have that like damp, like musty feeling? From just being in like that, the wet air. It has that damp, musty feeling. Okay. Unless it unless it actually got wet. Right. Okay. You know? Yeah, it definitely gets cold at the end of the season. We'll I'll I'll sleep on my I'll take my changed clothes for the next day and I'll put put it under my sleeping bag so that it's like not freezing cold when I put it on early in the morning when we get up. And we'll take like stones from the beach and put them uh, next to the wood stove, uh, like around dinner time, and then stick them in the bottom of our sleeping bag, keep our feet warm and stuff. What kind of stuff are you eating there? The, f- the food is really good. I figured, like, based on based on how luxurious your camp is, I'm like, they have to be cooking good food. Yeah, I mean, there's a there's a professional chef up there for the whole season, and his job is just to make dank food all the time. Are you eating fish? Are you eating, like, any of the fish you catch? Yeah, I think usually three or four nights a week, sometimes more, we'll have fish. And, we don't, yeah, we don't, we don't, like, because it's so hard logistically to get in and out and, and, it costs so much to put any sort of weight on the planes going in and out of there. Like it's all planned very carefully. We don't send any fish home or anything with clients, um, but we do eat. We'll we'll, we'll keep um, maybe like twenty pounds of fish a couple nights a week, um, and we'll eat salmon. And I get I usually get sick of the salmon after like a month or two, even though the chef switches up the way that he cooks it. But we also get um, small halibut out in the bay, and I never get sick of halibut. And we also get um, rock bass which are kind of like the black sea bass that we get over here on the east coast and they're delicious um and then the other few nights of the week it's like whatever the chef decides on whatever he orders 
you know, sometimes it's like a steaks or chicken parm or something. The, the breakfast is always really good. The chef does like a big breakfast in the morning. And then lunch, um, the guides just make sandwiches for the clients. And it's just kind of more of like a your average side of the river camping lunch, like cold cut sandwich and chips and cookies and a, and a drink. So would you say the food is better or worse than the YMCA breakfast? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, the Pondo. <laughs> it's much better. I have, I feel like I can still taste that food. Like I can still picture what it tastes oh. like because it was the same food every day. And it, it would be the same food for days at a time. It's oh, like, oh, the, here's this reheated for the fourth time and like turned into a soup. That was always the sketchiest. Yeah. They're like, oh, you had burgers yeah, right. last week and now you're having burger soup. Here's burger soup. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was the worst. I Actually, that's the only time I've ever gotten true food poisoning. Allie and I both, I don't know if you were there that year that Allie oh. and I both got food poisoning and missed the 4th of July. I feel like I got food poisoning every time I ate there. <laughs> <laughs> like I'd be running for the bathroom. 20 minutes after I ate every single time. This was like true food poisoning. Like I couldn't get out of bed and like couldn't walk. And Allie and I were just like laid up in these, we, we like finally dragged ourselves out to the 4th of July party and we're just sitting in lawn chairs with like sunglasses on, like hot sweating. Um, oh, it, or no. I guess cold sweating. It was just, it was awful. And then we found out that like a hundred people got food poisoning that day from the, from the well, YMCA. <laughs> but it was free. But it was free. So we took it. <laughs> Yeah. So tell me about the the fishing up there. Like you said, you're fishing for salmon. Is it all salmon? Do you do you trout as well? Um, and like, what kind of techniques are you using? Yeah. So there's um, there's two different camps. I'll just talk about I guess to start just the one that I'm I'm going to this year. It's called the Safari Camp, and that's the one that's out on the coast on the ocean. Um, and you're basically targeting either salmon or dolly varden. Um, you ever caught a dolly before? Mm-mm, no, I've seen pictures. But... They're so cool. You'd be you'd be obsessed with dollies. Like the way they look, or the way they fight, or what is it about? Because they look Every, like everything. They look like uh, brook trout on crack. Yeah, they're they're yeah. This is the crack <laughs> episode of fish and <laughs> um, Yeah, they're sea-run brook trout um, in the char family, and they get really big, and they're super hungry, and they chase everything. Um, and they fight real hard, you know, on, on like a five weight or a six weight rod, it's a pretty good matchup. Um, and they're in the rivers that we fish, like the ones that we hike to from our camp. Um, they're like around, I'd say they're maybe 15 to 20 inches or something, maybe up in the low twenties. But then there's a couple of spots that we fly out to where it's like all 30 inch dollies um and they eat mice and like stuff on top and eggs and they they follow the salmon in and and eat the salmon eggs and the salmon flesh when the salmon spawn um so yeah you're basically either targeting dollies or salmon um the cool thing about the camp that i'm going to the safari camp is there's a bunch of different uh water that we fish so you can kind of employ different techniques depending on where you're fishing that day and we try to kind of split it up during the week so that you know, different uh, groups of different trios of, of clients are going to different areas and kind of getting a taste of everything that the camp has to offer. Um, so right in front of camp is that tidal flat I was telling you about. Um, <clears throat> at low tide, it's like a big river um, and the salmon are just stacked up in there. You're mostly swinging streamers, um, pretty, usually pretty heavy streamers, um, like pinks, purples, chartreuse, and stuff like that. Um, and, uh, and then you can also fish the, that flat at high tide, 
um, which is almost, it's more like sight casting. Um, you won't catch as many fish cause they're not as concentrated, but it's pretty cool to, we can even like pull around in the little, um, we have, um, inflatable boats, like a 16 foot and an 18 foot with, uh, outboards on the back. They have like metal frames and then, uh, inflatable pontoons. Um, so we can pull around and cast at salmon, um, that way. And you're usually using like an eight weight for the salmon. Um, and there's three different kinds of salmon. Sorry, I'm kind of bouncing around a bit. No worries. Um, there's pink salmon, chum salmon, and silvers at this safari camp. And then you'll catch sockeye once in a while. Um, the, the pinks and chums are usually pretty thick early season. Pinks are smaller, but they're, they're still super fun. Um, I want to say they're like four to six pounds, maybe four to eight pounds, something like that. Um, chum are a little bigger. I feel like they can get up to 10 pounds. And then the silvers are like maybe six to 12. Um, the silvers are kind of what everybody's hoping for. Um, I'd say they're the best sport fish, uh, next to Kings. I don't know. It's, it's the Kings get bigger, but I think the silvers are more fun. They jump a lot. They'll, the silvers will eat top water. Um, so they're actually eating. And- you're not, you're not like, I, I would assume that no, they're not eating. They're not really. So why are they taking things on the surface? Um, I think it's like an aggression strike is, is what I've heard. It's like when they enter, so they're, they're swimming around in the Atlantic. So they're born in this river and then they swim around in the Atlantic ocean, like all over the place in a huge school for, um, Atlantic or Pacific? Anywhere. Pacific. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They go to the Atlantic and come back. It's yeah. like, that's a long journey. They're like, we right. ate this. Ocean. We're going, we're going across the world. <laughs> The big salmon run through like the Panama Canal. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so they're swimming around for a few years and then they come back and they they uh, come to the same river that they were born in um, usually. And once they enter fresh water, they stop eating and they kind of get into spawning mode. Um, when they first get there, they're like super, uh, chrome, silver colored and bright and full of energy. They still have sea lice on them, which means they just came from the ocean, from the salt. But once they enter, they stop eating and then they slowly make their way up into the, the little rivers that flow into that tidal flat, um, which is another area we fish, you know, we'll hike, um, up to like three miles up into this, these different river valleys to fish for dollies and salmon and, as they, the, the whole like process is pretty wild. When they enter fresh water, they stop eating and they start burning all their fat and then eventually all their muscle to get, just to make it upriver to the right spot where the riverbed is right for them to spawn. And then they use their last ounce of energy to spawn um, and then they die. And then when they're, when the babies are born in the spring, um, like the first thing they eat is like their, parents dead flesh you know it's like this crazy circle of life and the dead salmon uh revitalizes the whole you know it's it's like the energy for the whole ecosystem um all the birds and vegetation and and uh you know bears obviously and salmon sharks and all sorts of stuff up in there do you use uh, any flies that mimic the uh like the flesh uh yeah we will use flesh flies for the dolly varden what does that look like it's like a um like a white and orange like bunny leech type deal, okay. like a white and orange streamer. Yeah, like a shorter white and orange streamer. Uh, we'll use eggs for the dollies too and and uh, different colored streamers. White streamers seem to work pretty well. So the dollies are actually eating? 
Yeah, the dollies are eating. Because they're not going up to spawn and die. Right. Okay. I believe they spawn up there and then continue living. But yeah, so I don't know where else I was going with that. There's a couple other areas we fish. You can fish the beach. There's a If you go across the tidal flat, there's like a sandy beach that goes all around the edge of this bay for many miles. Um, and you can walk along that beach and sight cast to salmon that are kind of making their way along the coast uh, before they enter the tidal flat to spawn. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's pretty cool. And then we have the those two inflatable boats and we'll take them out into the bay when it's calm enough and uh, jig for halibut and sea bass usually just with conventional gear it's kind of cool it sounds like there's not like a one standard day like what people are doing it's it, like you, it sounds like you've got a lot of different opportunities of like what you can do at any given yeah. time yeah for sure there's a lot of different options and especially when you go hiking up the river like oftentimes we'll bring two rods um or one rod that's kind of in the middle like a six weight or a seven weight where you can have fun like still get a bend in the rod with a dolly but if you hook into a big silver you'll be okay is it more based on um, like what the situation is at the time or, or like what the guest actually wants to do? Like, are you just des- deciding what to do based on the tides and everything? Or are you asking like, hey, what do you want to catch? How do you want to fish? And that determines Yeah, it. we'll we'll start in the morning. And, and I think usually the, the first couple days, my boss will kind of decide or the lead guide will kind of decide like, we're going to send these guys over here, these guys over here. But then as the week goes on, um, we'll ask them in the morning like, you know, so what are you guys into? And then we might end up with splitting some groups up with people who want to go fish for dollies or people who want to stay in the flat. There's also limitations. Like some people are, we get some older clients um, or people who can't get around very well and they might spend most of the week on the tidal flat in front of camp because they can't hike way up into the river valley until we do the, the heli fishing stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What's a, what's the bear situation like? Are they like all over the place or is it pretty rare to see one? I know you said you carry guns. Yeah, they're everywhere. Uh, yeah, we'll see like, I don't know, we'll see a bunch every day. Like sometimes you'll see like 10 bears in a day on the river. Wow. Um, Are they interested in you guys at all? Or is it one of those things where like you've got it, you've got the gun for safety, but the bears are like mostly more interested in the salmon. So like it's not really that big a conflict with humans. Yeah, I mean, for the most part, they're just eating. And we we follow a lot of precautions and do a lot of things to make sure that they don't associate us with food. Um, but for the most part, they're just doing their own thing. We'll come across an aggressive bear once in a while, um, and have to decide kind of how to deal with it. Um, but for the most part, they're just doing their, their own thing. Sometimes you'll run into a young bear that has just been kicked out by its mother, like a two or three year old bear. And, uh, they're just, they kind of don't know the lay of the land yet. And they're a little curious, like a puppy or something. And that's, those are the ones that we'll get walking through camp and stuff, like checking out the smells and stuff like that. But yeah, we carry, most of the guys carry shotguns. Um, my boss has this giant handgun. It's like a 454. And in the shotguns, the first round that I usually have out is a popper shell. And it's like a flying M80. Um, so that's like if, if there's a bear that's being aggressive um, or if, you know, you just, you feel like you need to create some separation between the clients and the bear. You might lob one of those things up and, and it'll explode and scare them off. Most of the time, just, just yelling, just waving your arms and yelling, we'll, we'll send them running. Um, we'll, we'll also carry like a fog horn sometimes or like a empty trash bag and you can pop the trash bag. Um, and then, uh, after that, it's usually just slugs. Um, if shit hits the fan, gotta be ready to ready to use them but have you ever had a a sketchy bear situation that you had to like go beyond just 
popping off one of the, I don't remember what you called them, like, like the caps that you usually start with? No. No, no, I don't, as far as I know, no one at our camp has ever had to, you know, like, shoot to kill or anything like that. I think there have been instances where you might, like, hit one in the ass with birdshot or something <laughs> just to make sure that it, like, knows, like, hey, dude, stop walking through our camp. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, no, it's it's mostly just uh, just shooting those popper shells. Um, and, I mean, I've had, I had one sort of sketchy encounter, not that I didn't have to shoot the gun or anything, but. We have um, the, the, t- the two neighboring bays where we heli fish. We have um, little caches like buried. Like usually it's like a, like a 50 gallon drum with like some emergency uh, equipment in it, you know, like some spam and fire starter or something if we were to ever get stranded over there. And um, when I first started working there, my boss wanted me to know where it was and how to get there. So we went over for a heli fishing day and he took my clients and told me, you know, how to get there. He was like, Hey, you know, take this little, there was a little thread that went off the main river and there were super thick alders on either side. It was maybe 10 feet wide or something like that. So it was pretty scary. So I had to walk by myself down this thread that eventually made it back to the main river, um, to find out where this thing was buried so that I would know where to get it if I needed to find it. Um, so I was walking through and like, he told me to kind of have, you know, have my gun ready to go, like don't have it slung over your shoulder, like have it kind of locked and loaded and because it's very tight and you can see the, the paths that the bears make along the river and there's like dead salmon carcasses and stuff everywhere. So it's kind of eerie. So I made it all the way through this thread and there was a big hump um, to get that I had to walk over to get to back to the main river when I got back to the, like the clearing there. And um, I walked up over the hump and maybe... I don't know, 10, 15 yards away was like the biggest bear that I'd ever seen the whole time that I was up there. I don't know how big it was, like 800 pounds or something like that. And I was just like, holy shit. And I just stopped and he didn't even notice me. So I was like, I didn't know what to do. And I started fumbling through my stuff and I got my foghorn and I blasted off my foghorn and he turned and just like looked at me and then just went back to doing his thing. And I like tried, I like shot off a popper shell and he just kind of like glanced at me. And I just, I didn't know what to do. Um, so I just kept yelling at him. And then I eventually just like walked way down river and crossed below him and went up. But they're pretty, they're pretty big, scary things. <laughs> yeah, I feel like I wouldn't, I wouldn't know what to do in that situation either. Because you kind of just assume that the bear is going to react to, I don't know, the noise and the movement and stuff like that and just be gone. Right. You don't really consider what's going to happen at, or the other options. It's like coming at you and it's like, okay, I like in that case, I'd shoot it if it's, you know, really posing a threat to me. But if it's just standing there, like not caring, you're like, I don't know what to, to do here. Yeah. Yeah. They say if you, if you shoot a bear in Alaska, you better have claw marks on your, on your body somewhere because they're so um, well protected up there. Um, like if you shoot a bear and kill it, they'll have um, a whole, investigation and like a whole team flies in to figure out what, what would happen because they're so protected up there i mean that makes sense but it's like i feel like if the bear gets close enough to you to start roughing you up you might not really have the ability to shoot it anymore <laughs> yeah yeah for sure um that's yeah, it makes crazy, you though. wonder like if bear spray would cut it do you carry bear you spray know? too or just just the firearm um only only like around camp um if we have to go work on the water system or something and we're just taking like a short jaunt, um, we'll throw some bear spray on our, on our belt. Or if we're like working on something close to camp, um, sometimes we'll just bring the bear spray so we don't have to carry the gun around. But, uh, 
most of the time we carry the gun. What's the rest of the wildlife situation like up there? Like you see a bunch of moose or anything, or is it pretty like yeah. bear heavy? Yeah, we see moose, um, caribou, um, we see uh, wolves. Oh, really? Um, That's cool. Eagles everywhere. Yeah, wolves, foxes. Yeah, it's super cool. We had some moose like run through the middle of our camp one time. It was pretty crazy. And we'll see like where we're, our camp overlooks this tidal flat. So we'll see a lot of stuff go down on the flat in front of us. I think my boss once saw two bears um, fight to the death on the tidal flat. And then the one that won ate the one that oh, lost. Oh, jeez. <laughs> it's crazy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, we saw like, um, I think it was a uh, caribou was on the... Uh, he was in the middle of the tidal flat and he just stayed there like all day long and we couldn't figure out like what was going on and we he was just standing in the middle of the tidal flat like even when the tide came up and then the next morning we woke up and he was still there and um eventually we noticed that there were wolves like around the outsides of the tidal flat just kind of like waiting for him to make a move uh then the next night we, we woke up and he wasn't there anymore so who knows what happened Man, that's a you want to find out what happened in the end of that story, right? Yeah, I don't know. What's the um like that time of year? Is it just light out like most of the most of the day? Are you waking up when it's light and going to bed when it's still light out? Uh, at the end of the season, it gets dark at night. Does it? Okay. Um, and the stars are incredible. It's so pretty at night because um, you're so far away from any sort of light pollution. Like the entire sky is blanketed in stars, and you can see a shooting star every couple minutes um you see like satellites going through and and you can see um it's called andromeda it's like the the galaxy yeah you can see the milky way and stuff it's it's really pretty early in the season like if i were going there in june um it'd be light out pretty much all all day long it gets like slightly darker in the middle of the night but um so we we would just sleep with our with like beanies pulled over our face or whatever it's pretty pretty weird phenomenon um we're pretty far south in Alaska, I think as you go further north, that the difference is exaggerated. Like you get the twenty-four hour nights and stuff in the winter time as you go further north. That's got to be hard to handle when it's just yeah. dark twenty-four-seven for. I don't know. I, I'm assuming it goes for at least weeks in that in that state and months yeah. in like a pretty similar to its state. Yeah, I mean, I know there's it's, it's hard living out there for for those who do it all year round. I know there's the rates of um, alcohol abuse and suicide and drug like other drugs and stuff are, are astronomical up there makes sense um, i'm sure that has a lot to do with it so what's the uh what's the name of your outfit um and like what's it cost to come up there for a week it's called epic angling and adventure um and for the camp that i'm going to i think it's around eight thousand dollars for the week that's not terrible um, that's that's like without the flights and stuff and costs may have gone up since i haven't been up in five years but I think that's what it was. Yeah, it's cool. I mean, you get a you get a good mix of people who um, are super wealthy and do a couple of trips like this a year. Oh, jeez. And then people who are like, who have been saving for a long time just to go on this like ultimate Alaska trip with their dad or something. You know? Yeah. So you meet meet lots of really cool people up there. That would be an interesting um, like set of clientele to have like the people who've been saving their whole lives to go up there mixed in with the people who can just like throw away $8,000 like it's nothing. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. I mean, like 99.9% .9 of the people that come up there are really, really, really cool uh, regardless of their socioeconomic status. You know, I think it just someone who wants to go on a trip like that is probably outdoorsy and kind of down to earth and 
willing to put their phone down for a week. Right. Um, that's my favorite part about the whole experience and probably what I'm looking forward to most is not having uh, Instagram and Facebook and all that bullshit like at the ready. There's no phone service. There's no uh, TV, internet, um, newspapers, like nothing. So you can just like a it's a great feeling, you know, once you, once you loosen up after a few days, it's a great feeling to just not have all that stuff like poking at you and beeping and buzzing all day long. Yeah. I heard a, I mean, this probably happened to tons of people, but I heard a story of um, some guys who were on some sort of trip like that and they were there during nine 11. And when they came, like they were on, they were getting ready to come back home and they couldn't find, like they couldn't figure out why their flight was canceled out of there because like, I think after 9-11, they grounded everything. Um, so they yeah. were, like, confused as to why they couldn't get their flight out. And they f- came back. Like, imagine coming back from, like, a month of no service to find out that, like, 9-11 happened while you were gone. Yeah. Crazy things like that can just happen in that time period, and you have, like, no idea. I got I got a story like that for you. My, I had a couple friends from high school just recently sailed around the world in a sailboat um, for, like, a year. And they were in the middle of a 14 day or a 21 day sale when the COVID lockdown happened. And so they were getting like, like random, um, like random news forecasts. Like, I don't know how you get it out there. I want to say it's like Morse code or something, but it's just, you know, they would get like messages once in a while. That's like, you know, the United States has closed its borders, like China, like virus in China, you know, and they had like no idea what was going on except for these little blips. And then when they finally got to their destination, they found out what was going on. But so it was pretty wild. And they ended up like doing the rest of their trip kind of, they were like with a, with these groups of um, other people who were in the same boat and they were all kind of like quarantined together kind of like they had this own their own little section in whatever port they were at the dude actually wrote a book i haven't read yet i don't know if it's getting i think it's getting published oh, his name cool. is david joy yeah he, he'd be a pretty cool uh person to have on i mean he wouldn't be talking about fly fishing but pretty crazy story so were they aware of like because covid was around for a little bit before it became a thing you know like it, i remember seeing like a headline like oh like strange virus found in china and it was it was like a thing but it hadn't uh expanded to being something that people were panicking about and getting locked down over so were they aware that the virus existed and just weren't aware that things were getting locked down because of it or had had they not heard anything about it i think so i'm not i'm not uh positive on the timeline but i think they they must have known about it but then i'm pretty sure they were on that sale when when was it like third week in march or whatever when shit really started to hit the fan yeah it went from just being some obscure thing in other countries to like people are getting sent home from work and you can't go yeah can't go anywhere but the store kind of thing yeah it's a crazy crazy time that we're living in right now it's uh is that affected like your when you go up to alaska is anything different due to coronavirus or is it pretty <laughs> yeah much- i mean i have to pass a covid test on sunday in order to even go so i'm kind of nervous about that i mean I, i'm vaccinated and i've been being safe but I could just, I don't know, walk into a gas station and get it, I suppose, and not know. So yeah. that's like the moment of truth. I, I just have to have a test within 72 hours because if somebody were to get COVID and go to camp, it would really screw things up for my boss. He would probably have to shut it down. Yeah, and you can't just um, get like fake pee. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> do you, uh, just to like wrap up, do you have any um, either like horror stories or funny stories of like, weird clients you've gotten up there because like i feel like like you said most people have, are just like probably really cool the type of person who wants to go up and do that but i also feel like 
there there's like the one percent that are also just like off their rocker and that's why they want to go up there yeah um well i have i have one quick story and then one good story okay um so like on that along those lines um i did find that there were people and i found this at sasquatch too like you'd meet somebody at the beginning of a trip and be like oh fuck like this guy's an asshole (laughs) <laughs> like this is going to be tough you know yeah and then most of the time by the end of the sasquatch trip like you'd be like oh he's not so bad but a lot of times you'd still leave thinking they're assholes but i found that almost every per like pretty much every person that i met in alaska that came on a trip like even if for the first three days i was like this guy sucks <laughs> like i do not want to pretend to laugh at this guy's joke anymore um by the end of the trip, you find out that like most people are good people um, if you give them long enough to decompress and if you learn enough about why they might be acting the way that they're acting. Yeah, or like they're super plugged um, in and high strung and it's like but a couple of days in a tent kind of settles yeah. it down. Or... Yeah, and they you know stop reaching for their phone every 10 minutes and, and stuff like that. But yeah, just as a, as a cool story, um, one time we had crazy it was this crazy storm coming and it was when the helicopter was staying with us and the whatever it was with like the tide and the winds like there was going to be a super high tide overnight to the point where the little helicopter pad that we build down but we have to it has to be below the high tide mark because you can't land a helicopter in national refuge land so we can't like land in the middle of our camp it has to be like down the steps um on this little pad that we made and whatever it was with the tides and the winds and the storm, like the pad was going to get washed away basically. So the helicopter had to like last minute find a place to go. Um, and I volunteered, they needed someone to go with the pilot who is, um, have you ever seen Grizzly Man? Yeah. The, uh, he's the pilot in that movie with the mustache. Oh really? I don't, I don't remember that pilot, but I, I'll have to go back and watch it again. It's, it's been he's too long. Man. <laughs> yeah. He, he's, he's like a legend. Um, so he's an older guy, like bigger guy with a mustache, like probably in his 60s. Um, and so he asked me to, so I end up going with him in the middle of the night. We just like jump in the helicopter in the middle of this storm with like 30 mile an hour winds and have to find, there's like some spot that he knew of where we would be able to park for the night where it was like legal. Um, I forget what it was like, some sort of private land or something. So we jump in this helicopter and like, I'm pretty scared because it was scary. And where he's like, he's got, he's using his feet to steer it. And he's using, he's got a joystick in his hand. And then he's using his other hand for, with a joystick with the, to operate a spotlight, like below the helicopter. And he's like looking for like a place to land and like trying to find this spot with no map, like nothing in the middle of the night. And we end up like landing on a rock like on like a cliff like in the ocean to like wait for a second so we can try and find his bearings and i was like what the hell is going on and then eventually we we go back in the helicopter and we find this spot and we land and he shuts the helicopter down and he just he grabs he had a uh, sleep apnea a cpap machine and he had like a car battery in the back seat and he just like grabs the battery like hooks up this like mask to his face and just like passes out and i'm just sitting in the passenger seat like in this crazy storm we're in like thick woods like looks super berry and i was like what is so i like nudged him awake i was like dude what like should i go grab my gun like what 
what are we going to do if a bear comes up? And he's like, oh, we'll just fire up the helicopter. And like, and then he just like turns on his sleep apnea machine and falls asleep. <laughs> so I was, I was awake for the entire night, just scared shitless, like trying to sleep in the passenger seat of a helicopter. Um, and you know, we, we made it till morning and came back and I had to guide the whole next day, super tired, but um, it was a cool experience nonetheless. So you knew going out that you were just going to be sleeping in the helicopter. You just didn't expect that it was going to be like where it was and that this guy was going to hook up like a Batman Bane type face mask and just pass out. Yeah. <laughs> to like a car battery and just fall asleep <laughs> as if we were like at a Motel 6. Well, I'm sure he's like, used I, to that. <laughs> I, I think I thought we would be like up all night or something. I don't know. I don't know what I thought, but yeah, that guy's a legend. <laughs> that's, that's hilarious. Well, uh, I assume you're going to share some like pictures and stuff from your trip when you get back. Um, yeah, for you sure. You want to share your Instagram or anything in case people want to check it out? Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's Chris.Ballerini, um, like ballerina, but with an eye on the end. And uh, I guess if people want to check out the band too, it's oh, yeah. uh, Six Fox Whiskey. It's named after the helicopter up there in Alaska. And uh, we'll be back at it soon. And yeah, check out the... Um, Check out Russ's website. It's uh, epicanglingandadventure.com if you want to take a trip to Alaska. And um, yeah, that's all I got. Thanks so much for having me on. Yeah, and uh, just to clarify, are you guys mostly playing around Boston? Do you guys travel around at all? Uh, we play mainly in the Northeast. Um, we do plan on, we had a trip planned to Colorado um, last summer that didn't end up happening because of COVID. So um, I'll keep you in the loop when we end up out in Denver for sure. Yeah, I'd love just to come see you guys live. Yeah. Let me see. Well, thanks for coming on. This is a lot of fun. The uh, the crack episode, yeah, sure. the first the first of many crack episodes. <laughs> <laughs> I'll have to come back on and talk about striper crack. All right, sounds good. All right, guys, thanks for listening. Uh, don't forget to head over to the website fishuntamed.com for all episodes and show notes. And also, please subscribe on your favorite podcasting app. That'll get my episodes delivered straight to your phone. And also, if you have not yet, please consider going over to Apple Podcasts and leaving a rating or review. That's very helpful for me, and I'd greatly appreciate it. Um, Other than that, thank you guys again for listening, and I will be back in two weeks. Bye, everybody.